Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're starting our two-week series on the covenantal life of God in the church. And every September, as a family of servant missionaries, we take a week or two to review our life together. And we do a yearly signing of our covenant partnership. And if you would like a copy of that covenant ahead of time uh, before next Sunday or just want to look at it, we have a bunch on the table back uh, on the way out in the foyer. First Peter chapter 2, and I want to talk about this question, is this, what really governs the center of your life? What is it in your life that everything else orbits around? Because I want to say this, that every one of you, because you are a human, not because you're unique and not because we're different than anyone, but because you're a human, you have something of which all of your life orbits around you. I would love for the Holy Spirit to like hook up a machine to my arm and just put up on the screen, Scott, here's what your life orbits around. He can't do that. So... How do I find out what my life orbits around? Well, one, I can say, I believe this is what my life or- is, what, is, is what it orbits around. Or you could do one of the most potentially dangerous things you could do, and that is to ask your closest friends what your life orbits around. Have any of you asked anyone that question recently? Have you asked them how the weather is? Isn't it nice? Isn't it beautiful? Finally, no humidity. This is summer in New York every day. It's amazing. You'll talk about the football games today, which is great. You should have all watched the great soccer game in Italy yesterday. We won 5-1. to one. None of you care, but it's great. <laughs> right? I mean, like, we'll talk about all that. And those are good things to talk about. Those are not bad things to talk about. But when's the last time you had, like, a deep, meaningful conversation, you ask someone, when you look at my life, what is my life orbit around? And when you begin to uncover what other people see in you, you might actually begin to see what your life truly orbits around. And when you actually begin to find out what it is that your life orbits around, you will come to see that that is what we're going to call an ultimate faith commitment. It is something that you ultimately put your trust in because you think whatever that center is, if I put all of my trust in that and orbit all of my rest of my life around that, my life is going to be successful. In the Bible, we just call that salvation. You have something that you orbit your life around, that you look to for rescue. Because deep down, you know you're a mess. We try to cover it up with L.L. Bean. We try to cover it up with good jobs. We try to cover it up with kids. We try to cover it up with all kinds of things. But deep down, you know you're a mess, that you're broken. And as Christians, you can say, you know what, that's okay. 
I am broken. But the nature of humanity is to look for something to orbit your life around. Because the human condition innately craves salvation. It needs a center. If you don't have a center, you feel lost. You feel meaningless. You feel you have no hope. And regardless of what you center your life on, I, I would like to think that if you're a partner here at Redemption Church, you would say that you center your life on Jesus. And to some degree, I would ask you two questions. Number one, really, is he? And number two, who is the Jesus that your life revolves around? We live in a culture, this is no surprise to any of you, but it needs to be reminded of ourselves on a regular, if not daily basis, where the individual rights and the individual needs of the individual are always put at the front of the room, the front of discussion. They are the hidden, deep motivations of all of our hearts because of the culture that we find ourselves in. We've been taught from the very beginning that life is all about the life of the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness for who? Me. And so, when we look at centers, I have three diagrams I want to look at this morning. The first one on the screen is a diagram of what I would just call a non-follower of Jesus. That the very center of his life is himself, his individual, and he then consumes and he chooses, based on what is good for him, pragmatically, non-pragmatically, what is good for him in relationship to family. Do I want a family? Do I not want a family? How much money, what job am I going to take? How, what hobbies am I going to do? And at the end of the day, that all revolves around himself. Does that make sense? Okay. Don't get mad at me. Here's number two. Here's what I'm going to say the average American Christian looks like. We've just added a sphere. The sphere is just Church. Who's still at the center? Me. And of course, I'm not trying to be mean. A lot of these Christians do take Jesus into you know, their workplace and into their families. But church is just one arm, one extension, one spoke of their life. At the center of their life is still me. This is not a... Again, like, please don't get mad at me. This is just like a... I shouldn't go down this rabbit trail, but I'm going to. I'm just going to. I mean, I've said this before. If you want a computer, you need a computer. Where do you go buy a computer? One that economically is in your price range. So for most of us, MacBook Pro 16 inches are out the window. But then we also find the one that gives us some sort of meaning and identity. Like, why, let's just be honest, let's just make fun of me. Why does Scott have Apple everything? Like, you can make fun of me. It's because not only have I found the product useful, but there is some sort of like, I'm a Mac idiot. I'm, a, I'm part of the Mac cult, okay? And I'm disappointed every year now with these new phones. There's nothing different. And so, like, the identity there is, like, I just go choose what I need, what I want that gives me what I deserve, that I can afford. And when you want food, you do the same process. 
When you want clothes, you do the same thing. When it comes to church, guess what Americans do? Find the one that fits their needs, that fits their time schedule, that allows them to do all the other circles in their life. And what I want to say is I don't think that is a faithful or even the most, I should say, the most faithful way to follow Jesus. I think if we were to actually look at the next diagram I have on here, just the the American follower compared to the New Testament church, is that the church would understand that the center of their identity of who they are as a person is the church. So if you can picture it this way, I think most American Christians start with themselves and then they go to be with the community, the church. I think the New Testament church, and you can argue with me, but I think the New Testament church would say, I belong to the church. That is my starting point. And because I can't live with the church 24 hours a day, I go out as an individual, but I always come back where? Home to the church. As opposed to, I start with me, I go to the church, and then I get to come back home and be me. Do you understand that distinction? You don't have to agree with me. I just want you to make sure you understand what I'm trying to say. That is the orbit I think the New Testament is actually going to most align with. Not church being an an arm, like an extension of your life, but actually the very center of your life. 1 Peter chapter 2. That was a long introduction. You know, like, we were so good. For three years, our sermons were like 30 to 40 minutes. <laughs> then we did a sexuality series, and they jumped like off the charts. And you know why? I just realized this. There's no clock on the back wall. It broke. So <laughs> if anyone is sick of long sermons, buy a clock and put it back up there for me. First Peter chapter 2 There's a lot in this particular passage. I'm going to make a couple comments as we go through, um, just for your benefit, in a sense. Verse 4, as you come to Jesus, a living stone who is rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, church, what are the living stones right here? Anyone know what the living stones are? They are people. The stones that they're talking about were used to construct what in the, in the Old Testament? The temple. We're talking temple language right here. Okay, Jesus, as Paul would say, he's the chief cornerstone. Do you remember that in Ephesians? He's the cornerstone to God's temple. And Paul tells us in Corinthians that who is the temple of the Holy Spirit? We are. We are the temple. Jesus being the chief cornerstone, he's the living stone who is rejected, but you and I are also living stones that are being built up into the temple to be what, church? a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God 
through Jesus Christ. Because it says in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, which is just a crazy uh, quote from the Old Testament that the stone that Jesus is putting is not, that God promised in the Old Testament is not an actual stone, but it's a person. And so the honor, verse 7, is for you who believe. The honor is that those who believe in this living stone get to be built up as part of the temple. But those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey as they were destined to do. But church, here we go, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, for what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. So beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. And you guys, you all, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he comes to visit us. Father, help us, we pray, to hear from the Spirit this morning, not to hear my words per se, but to hear what the Spirit wants for us as a family, as our next step of faith to becoming a witnessing community to the new world. I pray that our center would, would be Jesus, and what Jesus is all about is purchasing a people for himself who will represent him to the nations. And so I'll give you the praise for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 uses very, very Old Testament identifying marks. Verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These words come directly from an Old Testament passage in Exodus chapter 19. If I were to catch you up to speed in Exodus chapter 19, God had just rescued Israel from Egypt. Remember, the Red Sea was parted. They walked through. The waters came, destroyed the Egyptian army. They go on to the other side, free people. They sing a song. They have a great worship service. They wake up on Monday morning and say, I want to go back to Egypt because they have bagels. And so here they are complaining that they'd just been freed. But the point in Exodus chapters 17, 18, 19, before chapter 20, which is where we get the Ten Commandments, is that God is preparing Moses to be the mediator between God and the nation of Israel because God is going to enter into a relationship with his people Israel. We call that in the Bible a covenant. A covenant is just simply an arrangement between two people. Probably the most clear example of a covenant in our day and age is a marriage. Two people have agreed upon certain conditions that we will be faithful to each other, forgive each other, 
not blah, 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 blah. Until life, until death parts us. And you give each other signs. You give each other things to remind you that you have rings to remind you of that covenant that you made. We see in Scripture that God is a covenant God. He relates to Himself in an arrangement between the Father, Son, and Spirit that before the foundation of the world, the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit entered into a covenant relationship with each other to create a world where one day they would actually dwell on that world. And then to actually bring about that world, God enters into a covenant with Adam, and he enters into a covenant with Noah, and he enters into a covenant with Abraham. And what we see now here is that God is entering into a covenant, an arrangement, an agreement with the people of God. We call them at this stage in the story of the Bible, Israel. So God is about to enter into a covenant, and as he enters into this covenant, in Exodus chapter 20, we have like the summary of what their life should look like. But in Exodus chapter 19, we have a summary for their whole existence. If I were to put it in today's sermon language, this is their center. This is why God called them out of Egypt and says, this is what the center of your life is to be. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter 19, you're welcome to do so. Or on the next slide, I have kind of like a diagram of Exodus chapter 19. And the reason it is written this way is because this is how Hebrews actually thought. Uh, We call this a chiastic structure, a chiasm, for you two literary people out there who are really excited. In English, in Western thought, we go from point one to point two to point three, right? Like we go linear. In in Eastern thought, they they thought cyclically. They thought in circles, and we would think they're stupid for going in circles, right? Western logic is very A, B equals C. But this is how they wrote. And so you'd have A that matches up with A. So the people of the camp, and then at the end of, the end of chapter 19, this section 8, the people of the camp repeated. Like There's like these layers that go together. And the reason they do that is because the very center of the structure is what they're highlighting. And so we could read Exodus 19, 1 to 8, and just, in our English minds, just go from A, B to C, you know, down. But in the way they wrote it, they're actually highlighting that Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, is actually the very center of this covenant that God is making with his people. And what is this covenant? Look in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. God says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. First of all, God says to Israel, you, you saw it. How many of you love to be like, if God would just split the sea for me somehow, I would believe him. Okay? And I want to be like, you'd believe him for about three minutes, and then you want this, another sea split. This is the nature of human heart. But God says, you saw it. You saw my power. And you didn't just see my power. You saw my compassion, how I bore you on eagles' wings. You know, Lord of the Rings, the wings of the eagles come and actually save. This is why Gandalf yelled, fly, you fools. Just kidding. 
The idea of wings, of eagles, being a place of protection, a place of safety. And it says, where did those wings bring you? To myself. Here's the picture that God says, you saw my power, you saw my love, and when all of my power and all of my love, where did I want to bring you? Okay, I don't know if you're like me, but if you had great power and great love, but people were annoying to you, you'd be like, here's my power, here's my eagles, now fly to Florida. Like, go enjoy your life down there. But that's not what God does. God actually says, here's my wings, I put you on them, you've seen the power and the love, and I'm bringing you to myself. There's a demonstration here again, church, that God wants to be with his people. As annoying deep down you are, you know yourself to be, as ugly deep down you know yourself to be, God still wants to be with you. And he's entering into a covenant relationship with Israel based on his power and his love and his desire to be with his people. And that sets the foundation for what the heart of this covenant life is, the marching orders. And God says, number one, he gives actually three descriptions in Exodus 19, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And I want to unpack these three, and I want you to keep in mind the whole time that in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter calls the church what? A kingdom of priests, a treasured possession, and a holy nation. I want you to keep that in mind, that this is what God spoke to Israel in around like 3,400 years ago. And then 2,000 years ago, Peter wrote the exact same thing to the church. This is who you are. God says, if you will obey me, out of all of the nations, you will become my treasured possession. The image here that is being presented of a treasured possession is a unique and exclusive possession of all the nations. And if we ever do theology night again, we're trying to find a date. We're going to see that nexus, sorry, in Genesis chapter 10 at the Tower of Babel. Remember the confusing languages? There's a whole lot more going on there. But what actually happened is God took those 70 nations the table of nations in Genesis 10, disinherited them, gave them over to lesser gods, and now he is calling Abraham to himself and gave Abraham his land. And God is saying, out of all of the nations, you, Israel, I have set my electing love on. You are my treasured possession. It is like the crown jewel of a large collection. In fact, this Hebrew word segula is used elsewhere to talk about a king's chief jewel in his treasury. And I use this silly example on the next slide all the time. Okay, if it, again, like if you just have to deal with my stupidity, but it's, um, can you keep going to the picture? Anyone know what picture we're looking at right here? Oh, you can't see it very well. But it's a picture of the Arkenstone in The Hobbit, right? Like, you, you remember the story, there's a big dragon, scary smog, sitting on a $2 billion in the, in Guys are trying to go back and get back their whole jewel and get back their city, but what do they want above all else? The Arkenstone. Okay, I have, I'll be, I know there's no condemnation, but there's two things I'll be condemned for. One, I watched Lost a long time ago from beginning to end. And the second thing I'll be condemned for is I have too many shoes and I only wear, I have a Segula, I have a treasured possession. I have a pair of Vans and North Face collab shoes I wear about once a year. 
Like they are like my, you look at my treasure chest of shoes, there's one right there. This is what God is saying. Out of all the nations, you are my Arkenstone. You are my treasured possession. The point is, is that God is saying to Israel, you have a unique privilege of being chosen by me. This word greatly, and I'm not going to get into all the nuts and bolts of this right now, but God was choosing a people. Israel was, ever heard the phrase, God's chosen people? Okay, now as soon as I say the word election, we're all going to be like, antenna go crazy. But God elected Israel. And what did he elect Israel for? I think we're going to come to see that the point of this special treasured possession of people, this unique status that Israel had as God's treasured possession, was for the point of election for mission. God elected Israel for the sake of his missional purposes in the entire world. God didn't choose Israel so they would just have a nice land. If they obeyed him, they'd have lots of milk and honey. No, God chose them. As he said to Abraham, the founder of Israel, you're going to be the man who blesses all the nations. They were chosen in today's language to be the missionaries to the nations. They were chosen to fulfill the promises to Abraham of fulfilling Yahweh's purposes for God's mission for the whole world. And what I think we come to see is that God's people, Israel, were chosen for mission. And I want us to think about this for a second, and I know it's early and I've already had a lot of information, but think of it this way. It's not so much that the church has a mission, but that the mission has a church. Okay, and I want you to stop and think about that. It's not so much that the church has a mission, but that the mission has a church. Redemption Church, we're not trying to find out what our mission is. Do you know, want, want to know why we don't want to know what we're tr not trying to figure out what our mission is? God has already told us it. He's already doing something. And now he's calling people to himself to fulfill that mission, which means that if you have been just like Israel, just like Adam, just like Jesus, just like the church. If God is calling you to himself through Jesus, by the Spirit, you have been set apart, you've been sanctified for mission. And at this time in the unfolding story of God, and if you've been at redemption for more than eight minutes, you'll continue to hear this story of God. But from beginning to end, we're in the, at the near the end of the story, and the church exists for mission. We don't exist for ourselves. You don't exist to make your family a better family. You don't exist for your emotional health just to be healthier. You don't exist just to make your life feel better. If that's the case, Jesus is not going to fulfill all your needs in this lifetime. Okay, signing up to be a Christian is not signing up for the happiness and joy and wealth. And what it signs you up for is a deep, abiding joy that one thing, everything that is sad will come untrue. It's coming and signing up for, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to come and die for the one who came and died for me. And I'm going to be about not what I want to be about and choose what I want to be about. I'm actually going to choose what Jesus has called me to be and to do. You are a treasured possession. 
His love and his power has carried you to himself. He wants to be with you and in you and to use you for what he's doing in the world. He didn't come and rest his power and his love and bring you to himself so you can decide what you want to do with your life in the name of Jesus. And they're very different things. Number two, I was going to say this. I'm going to say it right now. If this was my last sermon and I don't plan on dying or going anywhere anytime soon. This would be my last sermon to you. Like, this stuff is so deeply ingrained in my mind. Like, it is so pivotal to how I think and believe who Jesus is. But the second thing God tells Israel, that Peter tells the church, is that we're a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. And just think with me for a minute. On the next slide, I have uh, what... I think Moses and Yahweh are helping Israel to see. Anyone know what the role of a priest was in the Old Testament? An intermediary between who? God and the people. Okay? And so what roles would a priest have? Offer sacrifices. So if you wanted, there were more than just sin offerings, by the way. Like if you just wanted to go worship God and give him grain and be like, God, thank you for all of my crop, and you can come and give a grain offering. You had to go to the temple or to a place where there was a priest in your town who could offer that sacrifice to God for you. So not only did you go to a priest through God, but it also worked the other way. God would talk to you through who? A priest. So it's not just our way to get to God, but it's also God's way to get to who? Us. You also know that priests were given a military role. This is very underknown. But they were to actually guard the temple from anything unclean entering it. They were actually stationed in front of, uh, not actually Levites, priests, were stationed in front of the temple with like spears and weapons to ensure that nothing entered in. There was a military function. There is a teaching function. In the book of Malachi, Malachi is indicting the, the priests for not teaching the law of God to the people. So there was this intermediary, and I love that. They mediated. They were the in-between between God and the world, between God and the nation of Israel. Excuse me. If you keep going to the next slide, I want you to see what God is telling Israel. Just as an Israelite would have to go to a priest to go to God, God says to Israel, you as a nation are a kingdom of priests. Which means Israel takes the role of the priest, God stays where he is, but who takes the role of Israel? The nations. So how would the nations come to know God? How would God speak and communicate to the nations? Through Israel. This is their role, is to be the conduit between God located in the temple, and they would actually radiate and mediate the presence of God, the knowledge of God, the teachings of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God, the beauty of God, everything of God, Israel was to radiate out to the nations. So when God called Israel to be a, a covenant relationship with him, he, you know, we, I don't know how you think of Israel in the Old Testament. There's like 80% of your Bible is this nation about this little tiny state that's no bigger than the size of New Hampshire. Why is this nation so important? 
what do we do with this people? Like we read stories and like they, they complain. And so what does God do? Send snakes, right? They're, um, one of my friends from L.A., so planted Soma, L.A., is moving here. I don't know if he was here a few weeks ago. He'll be here next week. He found a snake in his house last week. No, two snakes in his house. Can you imagine finding a snake in your house? I'd, I'd like, I'd, I'd just run away. I can, I can handle most things, but snakes and me do not mix. And so he found an actual snake in his house. Okay, you know why he found a snake in his house? Because someone was complaining. And that's what God does to Israel, his people. When you complain, he sends snakes into your camp to bite you. So I told him to stop complaining. I didn't do that. But that is like what we think. We think like, if we complain, God's going to get you. And so Israel's there for like a bunch of character, moral sketches of how to live a life so God doesn't get you. In reality... Israel has much more of a role than just teaching us moral lessons of what God likes and doesn't like. Israel's role is to mediate and to share the, na- the knowledge, the love, the beauty, all those perfections of God to the nations. This is why God called Israel to himself. So what does that mean for the church? It means this, God's, pe- God's people today are also the kingdom of priests. We are called to actually draw the nations to the temple. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, who is the temple? Where is the temple? Everywhere God's people are is the temple. We're inviting people to the temple. We point people to the temple. Our life together, as we'll see in just a minute, is to radiate and to mediate the love of God, the knowledge of God, the beauty of God to people who do not know Jesus. We did a little literary class with chiasms and chiastic structure. Now we're going to go to physics class. Anyone know the difference between centripetal force and centrifugal force? I know nothing, okay, other than what I'm about to share with you. So if I get this wrong, you like science people, come help me. Israel in the Old Testament was the nation, and they were supposed to stay there. And as they lived their life together, the nations would what? Come to them. And we call that like, I think we call that centrifugal force, right? As things go around in a center, things go in a circle, things come to a center. Is that correct? Am I correct on that? Say again? Centric. Uh, no, you are right. That is centripetal. See, this is how dumb I am. I have to look at my notes. This is how dumb I really am. Centripetal force, sorry, brings everything to a center. So I've seen it one time and then I passed out. I think, they do, I think they do this with your blood, right? They put your blood in a machine, it goes in the center, and everything comes to the center. I'm so dumb. This is why, this is why I majored in theology and not science. So what we're going to do is we're going to leave science behind. And I'm just going to tell you the, the thought process. Israel is supposed to bring people in, okay? So... Whatever that force is, God bless you. But the point is to bring people in. And many people think when Jesus says go and make disciples, that now he's telling the church to like do the opposite and just go out. What I want to say is that Jesus is now saying leave Israel. It's for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? 
the ends of the earth. Why? Because now Jesus has just disempowered all the gods of the nation so that all the earth belongs to Jesus, and now all the earth is holy ground, and now all the earth is ruled by Jesus, and we are to go to different pockets around the world, but when we establish an outpost of the kingdom of God far away from Jerusalem, what is our job? We went out, but now it's to do what? Draw people in again. It's not just go where, as in the Old Testament, come. No, it's Old Testament, live in a certain way, we'll see, and everyone will come to you. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, go and establish a new outpost of the kingdom, establish a church, plant the gospel, and people who embrace the gospel live their life together, and that life will draw people to the temple, and the temple will be a manifest around the world. So God's people in the Old Testament lived in a single place. Now that Jesus rules all the earth, all the earth is holy ground, we as his people have gone, we are the ends of the earth, by the way. Jesus, sorry, God then tells Israel, you're not just a, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, but you're a holy nation. And I want you to see this, this, how this works together. Like, treasured possession speaks to the status and the privilege Kingdom of priests speaks to Spider-Man with great privilege comes great responsibility, what they're supposed to do. But now the question is, is how would they actually fulfill that? How would they be a kingdom of priests? And the third thing is, God tells them that they are, is that they're a holy nation. You're a holy nation. The, the Mosaic Law, as we call it, the 600 laws plus 613, depending on how you count them, all those laws in the Old Testament actually are for the joy of Israel. It's not a burden. Can you imagine someone being jealous of law? <laughs> Can you imagine someone like being jealous of God's law? Most of the time we think it's like, like a burden. Ugh. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I wish I could do that. Oh, I wish. Does that make, like, just be honest. Like, deep down, our sinful desire is like God's law is a burden. But it's actually the exact opposite. I have this on the screen for you on the next slide. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, before Moses sends the people of God into the promised land, which he's not allowed to go, Deuteronomy, deutero means second, and nami, namas means law. He's repeating the law a second time for the people as they go into the, into the lands. And one of his sermons that he gives in the beginning of Deuteronomy, he makes this point that God says to, Moses says from God to the people, See, I have taught you statues and rules as the Lord God commanded me, that you should do them when you go into the land you're entering and take possession of it. Keep them. And do it. Why? So snakes don't come in. So you can sleep better tonight. So that you'll know that you're right with God. All those things are not necessarily wrong. But in this passage, do them why? Because they will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the nations, the peoples, the nations. Who... When they hear about all these laws, they're going to say things like this. Surely, this is a great nation 
It's wise and has understanding people. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statues and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? I want you to catch two things about this. Number one, the laws produce an inward flourishing society. The laws God established actually are always for the sake of loving your neighbor. Do you know every time you commit a sin, you're actually committing violence or evil against your neighbor? You know why you're not supposed to lie and steal? Because when you steal, you're actually doing violence to your neighbor. Isn't that a bad thing? When you lust and commit adultery, you're actually doing a bad thing to that person's spouse or treating that person as an object. That is evil. These aren't just like random laws. It's that when you obey these laws, they produce a flourishing community. Like God wasn't out be like, you can't have fun. No, he's out like you're going to have fun. And the way you can have fun is everyone respects and loves each other. And you're always looking out for your neighbor, which is why God says the second commandment is like the first. The way you love God is how? You love your neighbor. You can't go to bed tonight and say, I love God, but didn't love your neighbor, because then you didn't love God. So the point that I'm trying to get you to see is that there is inward flourishing. There is inward joy when people follow the law of God. I mean, you just look in your own family life or in your MC life, whenever people break the law of God, there's conflict, there's anger, there's jealousy, there's bitterness. But that inward flourishing would create an outward reality. The means by which the nations would come to know Yahweh was through, I'm going to call it this, their missional obedience to the covenant. It was Israel, as they kept the commands of Yahweh, that the nations would take notice of their God. How would the nations you go back to that chart, come to Israel to know God through the way Israel structured their life together around the law, the way they loved each other, the way they served each other, the way they actually went out of their way to benefit their neighbor. And when someone sinned against them, they forgave them. And there were laws for equity and justice for the least of the least to the greatest of the greatest in Israel's society. When Paul, sorry Peter, tells the church that you're a holy nation, he goes on to say it this way, live such good lives among the nations. And of course, because we're individual Western Americans, we like, that's me, I got to go live my certain life this way. But I want you to know, yes, you do need to live your life that way, but it's more than just your life, it's the church's life. It's the church's life together that Peter is concerned about. He isn't concerned that all the individual Christians in Asia Minor go to their church on Sunday morning and then on the rest of the week, they're living their individual lives at work and family and then come and... That is not the picture of the New Testament church. The New Testament church was concerned about the life of the church, the structure of how they structured their life around God's covenant. I said at the very beginning of the sermon, you structure your life around something. What do you center your life on? 
What do you really center your life on? See, for the New Testament church, I think centering your life around structuring your life around God's people so that people who don't know Jesus can come to know Jesus is what the center of the Christian life is. And you use your gifts and you use your abilities and you give up your time and your talents and your treasures and you gather together so that we can go and be the light to the nations. We can be the witnesses. We can be a kingdom of priests. Checking to see if I have a slide. I don't. So I'm going to skip that. And let me ask you to ask yourself some of these questions on the next slide. We ask questions. Can you read that? We ask questions like this. Where does God fit into the story of my life? When the real question is, where does my little life fit into this great story of God's mission? Or we need to begin do business with things, thoughts like this. We all want to be driven by a purpose that has been tailored just right for our own individual lives, right? I mean, this is the American, well, everyone, every little kid is being taught every day. Figure out who you are. Get a perfect little life tailored just for your own individuality. When... We should be seeing the purpose of all of life, including our own, is wrapped up in the great mission of God for the whole of creation. We talk, this third idea, about the problems of applying the Bible to our lives. You ever heard this? Like People always want to be like, man, you just, when you preach, you just don't apply the Bible to my life. And I don't have time and the energy anymore to say this. Um... What would it mean to apply our lives to the Bible? Do you see that difference? It's small. The words are basically the same. They're just in a different order. But it is a totally 180 way of looking at the world. We want to know how to be a good dad rather than how do I know, how do I apply my life, who God has made me to fit into his story, into his mission. We may wonder what kind of mission God has for me when I should ask what kind of me does God want for his mission. See, I think when we come to see what a covenantal life together, what we're asking God to do at Redemption Church over this next year is to really make church the center of who we are. It's imperfect, It's going to be filled with sin. It's going to be filled with strife. It's going to be filled with hostility and anger. But if our commitment is to be a covenantal people from all through Scripture, to be people who commit our lives to Jesus, which means around his people for people who don't know Jesus, I think we're actually going to faithfully play our part in what God is doing in the world. I close with this. If you notice back in Exodus chapter 19, God says, if you obey me, I will make you this. Did Israel ever obey that fully? Did God ever abandon his plan to make his people a kingdom of priests? Even though Israel didn't live up to what they were called and what they were supposed to be, that plan, God didn't go to plan B. 
In fact, what was God's plan? God's plan was to send the the true Israelite. Because the nation of Israel, you know why they couldn't live up to being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Because the powers of sin, Satan, and death were just way too strong that even the greatest king Israel ever had, David, who was a man after God's own heart, could not overcome the powers of sin, Satan, and death. God's people could never be led in God's ways because God's people were never able to conquer those powers. So what does God do? He writes himself into the story. This is why Jesus is fully God and fully man because he entrusted this mission to humanity. So there had to be a human. But no human could overcome any of these powers. So who else had to to come? God. This is why Jesus is the God-man. We're not doing crazy math problems. 100% man plus 100% God equals 100% Jesus. It's, It's true, but the point isn't a math problem. The point is a theological issue that God had to enter into the story because no man could defeat those powers so God's people could become who they're supposed to be. But he had to be man because this is what God entrusted, his, who he entrusted his mission to, which means this, church, and this might be a little oversimplification and exaggerative, but it's for effects. Jesus did not die on the cross for you to go to heaven. Jesus died on the cross to help you become who you were always supposed to be, which was what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He came to make you that. And yes, when he comes to make you that, he dwells with you and the presence of God and the life of God and the love of God is in us, is with us. And we will be with him forever in that new world, that new creation. But in the present time, he has destroyed the powers of sin, Satan, and death in your life so that you could become who God always wanted his people to be, a kingdom of priests. Jesus, help us to be people who see the beauty, the excellency, the forgiveness, the love, the power that is in Jesus and how you have carried us on his wings to be with us. So Jesus, we thank you that you have come to free us from the powers of sin, Satan, and death so that we can take up our role in the story of being this royal priesthood, a holy nation, your special treasured possession. And I pray that this would more and more embody my life and the life of people here at Redemption Church, that that would be the center of who we are. Because we deeply do want the name of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the excellency of Jesus to be elevated above all else in this city. And so may we be people who seek that. I want to encourage you to just take a moment and to listen to the Spirit. Ask the Spirit to share with you what He wants with you this morning. I don't know if you've heard voices of condemnation, voices of doubt, voices of cynicism. Those are not the Spirit. I want you to hear what the Spirit is saying to you this morning.
Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.